Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Breast Cancer Conversations. A lot of times we talk about how breast cancer doesn't just affect the person who's been diagnosed, but it affects all of us around that person, right? The families, the caregivers, the friends, the neighbors. And it's important that we carve out space for the community at large, for people to talk about what they're going through as a caregiver, as a parent, and also, especially in today's conversation, mothers who have lost their daughters to metastatic breast cancer. It is my pleasure and honor to be speaking with Karen and Denise as they tell their stories of their amazing daughters, Amanda and Katie. Welcome to the conversation. The Bright Spots, the legacies and the people who are bringing forward and carrying on the legacies of their loved ones. And the two women who are joining us today have both committed to that, have both committed to carrying on the legacies that their daughters began to create um, because it's their legacy as well. Uh, My daughter, I started to say was, she will forever be Katie Haynes. She was married, so we did at times use her last name, Casillo, but she's mostly known as Katie Haynes. And she made me a mother. She was my firstborn child and the most wonderful friend that I ever had in this world. We were very, very close. And at 28, she found a lump after a lot of testing, determined it was cancer. And that was in January of 2012. Uh, Double mastectomy, reconstruction, chemo. And at eight months, her doctor said, I can't tell you you're cancer free, but for all intents and purposes, we can't find any cancer in your body. So go live life, have a great time. And uh, less than a year later, just a few months later, she was diagnosed as metastatic and it was in her liver. And from initial diagnosis to death, she had 27 months and she had either eight or nine months after her her metastatic diagnosis. But Katie was a person that left a big impact in the world. She was a a philanthropist in the quiet, most wonderful sense of the word, because nobody even knew what she was doing. She didn't tell me. I heard the stories after her death, just one after the other. And so we knew we wanted to do something to honor her and continue her legacy. And after her uh, cancer diagnosis, before she, the year before she was metastatic, she saw a need in the cancer community and began buying uh, Christmas gifts for moms diagnosed with metastatic cancer and their kids. And she only had two years that she was able to do that. But that launched the Katie Haynes Beauty for Ashes project. And that's what we do. We provide Christmas for local moms at Moffitt Cancer Center. And they don't have the burden of worrying about the finances, or even most of them don't even have the energy to go shop, let alone wrap. So that's what we do. And we've spread out a little bit now. We're, we're uh, meeting some other financial needs as well in that community. Such a beautiful uh, example of how we take care of our own in this cancer community, right? And yes. it that just... It just warms warms my heart as a mom, just because Christmas is hard when you have no energy and you want to provide that for your kids. So I just think that what you guys are doing is so amazing. Karen, uh, would you like to introduce yourself and talk about Amanda and uh, how how you got to this place? Yes, uh, Amanda uh, was a person who, from her earliest days, was a person who loved life love travel. You could put her in the car seat and take her anywhere and she'd uh, sleep and explore and uh, just had a, have a great time. And uh, she had that all her life. Uh, when she finished college, she uh, went into 
she did some part-time jobs and then went into the Peace Corps and served in Swaziland for uh, two years. And uh, then uh, uh, she'd already had some uh, travel experience. She did a, a semester in uh, Cork, Ireland uh, in college and uh, discovered Ryanair and figured out that she could fly all over Europe for about five bucks if she didn't mind being in the airport at three in the morning. And uh, <laughs> so she did a lot of exploring of Europe and uh, uh, got a degree, she said, in pub crawling in uh, Cork, Ireland. And uh, so that was already established. And uh, then after she finished the Peace Corps, you know, you get a severance uh, pay, which a lot of people spend on, uh, uh, you know, their next, next educational step or whatever. And she said, Mom, I'm, I'm over here anyway, <laughs> and I've got some money, and I want to keep traveling. So she went to, uh, she uh, traveled to several other countries in, uh, in Africa, uh, and uh, was planning after that to go to Europe, um, and uh, uh, one of her, la her last stop in Africa was, uh, was Morocco, which mm -hmm. she had thought at first she might be going to for Peace Corps, and there she met Jonas. Uh, Jonas Atsayadala, who is uh, a uh, Berber, um, who uh, lived in uh, in uh, uh, the middle, middle Atlas Mountains, but they met in Marrakesh and hit it off right away. And uh, they, they met several other times while she was still traveling in Europe and seeing family members in Germany and Italy and places like that. And uh, anyway, they ended up with a uh, long distance, very serious relationship. Um, in just before December of 2013, she had been working in New York with a student, um, uh, AFS, the student, uh, um, travel group. And, uh, she'd been meeting kids at the airport and, uh, filling them in and making sure they got on the right planes and stuff like that. Anyway, um, she had been doing that in New York and one day she found a lump and, uh, 28 years old and like Katie. And, uh, you know, everyone, well, you know, your aunt had, your aunt had uh, benign uh, lumps uh, when uh, she was uh, young. And uh, I'm sure that's it. And uh, unfortunately, just before Christmas, it was, uh, it was uh, diagnosed as uh, stage three cancer. Uh, and uh, she came back to live with us in Florida to have the family support. And she told Jonas and he came over right away. And in March of 2014, they were married on the beach in Naples. And uh, they, uh, she, she had, um, I think the worst time that I, she knew right away for some reason about, well, not right away, not in the first few months, but she, she learned quickly about MBC, about uh, metastatic breast cancer. And she was very worried since she was stage three that that was in her future. And uh, a lot of times she tried to talk to me about it. And I would say, oh, you know, you've had all, you've had this huge line of treatment. You've done a clinical trial. You know, you've done everything. You had a mastectomy. You had radiation. You know, this isn't going to happen. And uh, I didn't, I, I didn't listen to her the way I should have because she was right. Um, but uh, in the meantime, uh, she did a lot of travel again. And I don't know if you can see this. but. This is, this is, whoops, this is her and Jonas in the mountains in Morocco. Uh, her dad and I were along on that trip and we met, we met our in-laws and uh, uh, in Medelt and uh, it was just a great time. And that was 2015. Um, then at the beginning of 2016, January 3rd, my mother died. January 7th, Amanda got along away. A brain scan because she was fearing that she had um, she didn't ever had headaches but she was fearing she was having seizures that had to do with something wrong with her brain and uh, I was outside and uh, it was up in Tampa that she had the scan and I was in Naples and her dad came and said Amanda just sent a message saying they found two tumors but they're very operable so and he didn't really know what it meant but I did. And uh, at that point, I'd gotten a little smarter about NBC. So I just, you know, I was just paralyzed, just stood there. And uh, how am I going to talk to her? What am I going to say? And then I just kept saying, she's alive. 
She's alive now. I don't know how this is going to turn out, but right now she's alive. And I have to pull myself together and do the best I can to support her through this. And I really never changed. And right up till a month before she died, I kept saying, you know, she's alive. It might get better. But anyway, she uh, uh, she uh, had a, she had a, um, a craniotomy. I had a very good uh, um, result with the removal of the tumors. And then she did another clinical trial uh, for something that has since proved to be very successful. Uh, instead of radiation, she did some chemo. And uh, then eventually they started to one, she had one bed in her, uh, in her brain area that just kept, uh, you know, trying to regenerate a tumor. And she eventually had radiation. But the really, the really bad part was, uh, yeah, it sounds like such a drama of family travail, but uh, she was actually in, uh, in uh, Oregon uh, to uh, attend the memorial service for her 26-year-old cousin who had uh, killed himself. And she got the word that she had spots on her liver. And then, uh, you know, then it got more complicated because up till then, you know, they would just were able to treat her brain. But with the liver, you know, it's more complicated uh, because uh, if you're treating the liver adequately, it's possibly not crossing the blood brain barrier. Uh, she, it, I, I, I don't know if I'm going on too long, but during this, during this whole period, she really studied. I mean, she, she said she studied started to actually be, be begin to read abstracts when she was in the Peace Corps because she was working with HIV patients. And uh, so she, she really started to educate herself. And the people she met who are still, you know, in the NBC community who are, who are still doing great things, uh, I mean, one of them said, I just couldn't believe she was a history major. I figured she had some kind of science background because she she was so good at uh, uh, understanding these things and explaining them to other people. And uh, she always got second opinion. She had some very good oncologists. And really, everything went fairly well. And then 2019, everything started to fall apart. Uh, one of her uh, the spot, it, it was actually in the dura of her brain, and it had gotten uh, bigger fast. And so she had another, uh, um, she had another uh, brain surgery. And unfortunately, this one left her partially paralyzed. And uh, so she had been working very hard on PT, though, from the time that happened. And then uh, in, uh, in spring, um, and she had been off treatment while she was, you know, recovering from the brain surgery and everything. And then by summer, uh, she was... Uh, she was back on treatment for her liver at that point, but uh, she started to have uh, symptoms and pain that she hadn't had before. And she discovered that her liver was very badly compromised. And uh, so anyway, she didn't want to go into hospice, but eventually she did uh, for at home because <laughs> we went, we were in the emergency room that day and they were keeping her overnight uh, to see if, you know, there was anything they could do with stenting the liver, which turned out they couldn't. And she said, I do not want to die in the hospital. And then she followed it up by saying, I want to die on the steps in Lisbon because she was set to go to the uh, International Breast Cancer Conference in fall. She'd already had a grant for it, um, but uh, she did. Died home in her bed with her husband and me there and her father in the next room and an aunt who was kind enough to come and give us support. And uh, yeah, yeah. Um, after that, uh, within the next few days, uh, we, had, she and I had been to uh, SABCS, uh, San Antonio Breast Cancer Conference, twice together. And one thing she just loved was going to poster sessions just because then she could speak directly to doctors and researchers and, uh, you know, um, ask questions, ask what the latest was. Uh, she became very... Uh, she was really well known, being very uh, aggressive in, uh, in uh, not aggressive, but very uh, forthright in asking questions and unafraid 
to follow up and confront people and, uh, you know, ask for explanations. And uh, so she did that. And I, so I called one of her friends, uh, Christine Hodgden. And Christine had been with her for a while during hospice. And Christine said, well, we're doing this. We're, we're actually doing something called GRASP. And it stands for uh, Guiding Researchers and Advocates uh, to Scientific Partnership. Uh, and this was based on, you know, increasing access. I basically first said, can we do a travel grant? And then she told me about GRASP. And uh, so we ended up that year for SABCS uh, funding um, uh, travel grants for a number of uh, people uh, in the uh, um, less, uh, the less, mainly minority uh, women uh, who uh, had, had, you know, had not been attending such sessions because it had certainly struck both her and me that uh, the sessions of patients are, especially the ones that travel to conferences, are tend to be educated white women. <laughs> and uh, we wanted to, uh, you know, wanted to knew that there were lots of people in other communities who should be there too, and probably never even knew about the opportunities. So uh, so anyway, we uh, funded some people to attend these poster sessions. And the, the great thing about the poster sessions is it's by, it's both ways. Uh, the, uh, the patients get to ask questions and talk directly to researchers, and the researchers see actual patients, which makes it all real, you know? So anyway, we're continuing with that and uh, we didn't do it this year because of COVID, but uh, we're, uh, we're working with Tiger Lily Foundation and with Christine and Julie and what they're doing to further grasp and uh, trying to, uh, trying to uh, essentially uh, increase this bilateral two-way communication and make it available to more people. I've participated in uh, a lot of the GRASP sessions, so it's expanded to the American Society of Clinical Oncologists meeting um, and other um, uh, research, uh, Teresa's, uh, I forget the name of, of the other one, but it has now been done multiple times. And every time I mentor the uh, advocates, I tell them, I am going to teach you how to channel Amanda when you are talking to the scientists. And uh, the bottom line is it's respectful, but you don't let them not answer your questions. And if your question is not answered, you don't say, okay, and move on. You say, wait a minute, I don't understand. So um, her legacy is definitely living on in the way that she wanted um, to do her life, which was to be very forthright and upfront and a bit in your face, which there's nothing wrong with that. So Karen, I'm so happy that you guys have been able to carry on. Yes. Her, my her husband, legacy. my husband was very much behind this too. Unfortunately, as Laura mentioned, uh, he, uh, he died of a heart attack about seven months after Amanda died. And, uh, I think, uh, I think, you know, I don't know how much, neither of us had much energy and we thought it was depression. And I don't know if it really also affected his physical health or if it was just something that was going to happen anyway. But uh, but uh, he was very much in support of her also. And uh, There is something in a lot of ways, I know I've talked about this with my parents a lot, just something very at its basic biologically incorrect. You, you don't ever expect to see your child die before you do. Um, in fact, one of the first conversations I had with my dad after I had been diagnosed was, you know, he's like, we need to make a pact. I get to die before you. And, um, I, you know, I, I see that in a lot of families that it's just like, it's just, it's out of order. Um, but one of the things both of you said, as you were talking about your experiences with your daughters is that there were times where you guys were at different places um, where there was some, maybe some sort of knowledge deep within each of your daughters that, and you weren't quite there yet. Denise, will you talk about that a little bit, a little bit more? And, um, if somebody's listening and their daughter is living with, with MBC, um, how did you get past that kind of being at, at a disconnect or not being on the same page? 
for myself, everything I did, I approached from a spiritual place because we were a, a family of really great faith. And I knew that the night she came home and told me that, that she had cancer and she wasn't even metastatic. She was early stage and they were telling her, oh, this is treatable. I knew in my spirit that night that she was going to die. And, you know, unless you've had, you know, some sort of experience like that, you can't understand the, the confidence, the quiet, peaceful confidence that you gain out of that. That was a gift to me. She and I, as I said earlier, we called this our dance because so often she would get bad news and she would withhold the ugliest parts of it. And she would tell me, Mom, please don't Google this. Promise me that you won't Google triple negative. You won't Google liver involvement in metastatic breast cancer. Because she she knew, she understood that once I knew that, I was going to be devastated knowing that my daughter's going to die. And she just didn't know I already knew that. I wasn't, I didn't know the the terminology. I didn't understand the medical explanations of it, but I knew. And then she was trying to protect me emotionally. And then there were other times prior to her diagnosis, we were a family who discussed death. We all wanted everybody to know what our wishes were, how we felt about it. Death was a homegoing for us. It was, we were only concerned about the people we would leave behind, not that we were dying. And probably one of the most poignant things she ever said to me, she went to a uh, conference in Tennessee and the lady who wrote the song, The Climb, I can't think of her name right now, but Miley Cyrus sang the song. And it talks about achieving, the, the, the climb is you're achieving what you want to in life. And Katie was not a person who ever listened to music. That just was didn't move her. But she came home and played that song and she told me, you know, mom, my climb, I understand now, is the way I live my life because that's all that's going to be left of me when I'm gone. And so I want to make sure that when someone remembers me, they're remembering something I did for them or I helped them or I helped make their life a little bit better. And from that time on, that was that was pretty close to her decline. Um, we didn't talk about wishes. I knew her wishes and she had a husband I had to defer to, but there was a quiet understanding. We knew what was happening. And so we were okay and okay in the quietness of that. It's so beautiful to talk about. I mean, we've had a, um, a widow talk about how there's intimacy in those last weeks and months, especially if you've talked about those things. And uh, that seems to be a familiar refrain as, as we're, you know, the quietness or the the peace, the comfort um, in that. So thank you for, for sharing that. Karen, you mentioned the same thing that, that you and Amanda weren't always on the same page. Uh, t- could you talk a little bit about that more and, and how you guys were able to get to the same page? Well, we had a little different experience um, because Amanda put a great deal of her uh, her faith and hope in science. And she so she wanted me to look these things up. She sent me things. She let me read things because she wanted me to be her partner because her idea was uh, she wanted to do everything she possibly could. Um, and she did, you know, she did have a couple of successful trials that worked absolutely great. And then in eight months, they didn't work anymore. But she wanted to just keep searching. She wanted other opinions. I was her chauffeur a lot. Uh, I know all the back roads of Florida and some in mm-hmm. South Dakota. And uh, But uh, uh, she actually, once I'd gotten past, this actually can't be happening, which was my first reaction. I did, I did, uh, you know, I think one day, um, we were in the car and I said, again, why are you borrowing trouble? You know, why are you so sure you're going to be metastatic? And she said, mom, I'm just never going to be blindsided again. And at that point, I think I saw I can be more help to her if I'm her partner in this than if I'm trying to paint a rosy picture for her, um, because she seems certain that uh, this is 
the rest of her life is going to be dealing with cancer. And it turned out that was true. So, uh, so like I say, she, uh, she would share things with me. Uh, I went to many oncology appointments with her. Uh, her dad and I, when we went together, would sit speechless with our eyes bugging open because uh, our kid who barely made it through science is suddenly talking to oncologists like she, uh, you know, like she had a degree herself. And uh, um, she would, she became very educated and I just felt it was my, my duty uh, kind of to try to keep up with it and uh, to try to get past the denial that kept pushing its way in. <laughs> um, but again, as I, as I said, my first reaction is she's alive now. I have to help her with would her you, life. Oh, would you talk a little bit, Karen, about the experience of going to the advocacy conferences with Amanda? <laughs> was it was it was actually great fun uh i went to um i went to several you know close by at moffitt and so on but our big one was uh, san antonio and uh, she had gone one year before and then we went together for the next two years and it was uh uh it, it was kind of a combination of uh uh you know she'd give me the list of the uh posters she wanted to do one one year she said now, I'm going to see that Dr. So-and-so discusses this with Dr. Uh, with Dr. So-and-so. One was her regular oncologist, and one was one that had done some, uh, um, some uh, looked at her foundation one results and gave her some other uh, advice. And she said, well, I'm, I'm going to see that these two guys talk to each other. So she dragged one of them from his poster session to the other guy's poster session. <laughs> So they could talk, and uh, I don't know how much she actually got out of that. But uh, anyway, uh, uh, we had we had good times. We went to some of the nice restaurants in San Antonio, and uh, first year we uh, first year we had cocktails on a on a balcony in sleeveless dresses, and two days later it was snowing. <laughs> but. Uh, you know, I learned a lot. I didn't, I certainly couldn't keep up with things the way she could, but, uh, you know, we had other people there that, uh, that helped out. And I met people like, uh, Mae McCarmo from, uh, uh, from, uh, uh, Tiger Lily and, uh, got to know Christine a lot better, Julia Mouse, some other people, and, uh, got to know a lot of patients. One of the constant parts of the heartbreak here is, uh, uh, at this point, a lot of people I met early after Amanda's diagnosis uh, have died. And some of them were very young women. And it's really hard to see them. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, but uh, yes, it was, uh, it was good to go to the conferences. And uh, I, uh, I really have a special, special feeling about uh, San Antonio. I wanted to go back to you. Um, Karen's just talked about some of the things that she did with her daughter as far as advocacy went. Would, would you talk about some things that you were able to do with your daughter? Were, were you guys able to participate together in um, helping local people with uh, their Christmas while she was alive? No, I, my story is very different. Katie, because she didn't have that much time, uh, she... Actually, the person that she began helping lives in California. That was her very first recipient. She and I are now wonderful friends. She's been here to stay in my home, and I just love her to death. We will be lifelong friends. Um, Katie tried for one clinical trial, and that was between the time she was given the all clear and then found another lump that got dismissed, even after breast cancer, they dismissed a lump. Mm. And so uh, she went to Moffitt for this clinical trial. And while there and giving her history, they asked, of course, about a lump. And immediately the nurse practitioner said, would you mind being seen by the doctor running this clinical trial? And from that moment forward, she was a patient at Moffitt and received wonderful treatment, but she was metastatic. And uh, so... From that point forward, between the time that uh, she was given the all clear and the time she found the lump, we just 
lived life. We went on cruises. We went for beach vacations, those kind of things. We were kind of in celebration mode, even though the back of my mind, I knew, you know, but she was, she was in celebration mode for sure. So that's what we did. There was no talk of doctor's visits or clinical trials until that, that one came up that she, I think without her saying it, she knew too, that she needed to go and participate in that. She said it was for other women uh, down the, the road, but she had that lump. She knew very well that something was wrong. I, I love the passion that both of your daughters had in participating in clinical trials, not just for their own treatment, but just the idea that they yes. were paying that forward, right? Yep. Allowing the doctors to study them for the the benefit of others. And, um, you know, again, I, I see that over and over and over again in the metastatic community where people are participating in trials right up to the point of their deaths, um, knowing that it wouldn't save them, knowing that it's not going to make a discernible difference for them, but it would, it would for others. So I think that that's a wonderful part of, of their legacy, just their, their tissue, their living tissue is still being studied. I think that's um, amazing. Amanda was on two clinical trials, actually, that have been very successful, uh, generally. She was, uh, and I can't remember what it was called, but she was on a, uh, um, uh, on a trial uh, right after her initial treatment. Anyway, she was on that trial, and then... Uh, her latest trial before things started really going bad for her was uh, DS-8201, which is now known as the Destiny trial. And uh, it looks like that's going to be um, a good advance for a lot of people. And uh, she she did feel, even when she uh, they kicked her out of the trial after eight months because she started to have uh, progression again, uh, she felt that she had done, done something to help. And... Uh, it turns out, you know, one of the things that I would consider part of Amanda's legacy as well is because she had brain mets, every single doctor she was talking to, she was fussing at them about how most trials uh, exclude people with with brain mets. And she was always uh, talking to them about how that should not be a uh, reason to um, eliminate people from from trials and um, seeing how that's become something that's happening. Uh, I see that as part of her, as part of her legacy as well. I mean, I, I know that um, there are some doctors who have also championed that, and so um, you know, I, I won't give her all of the credit, even though I'm sure she planted a lot of seeds in a lot of people's minds. So, um, you know, some of those um, is it form over substance type things. She had absolutely no uh, tolerance for for the thing, <laughs> actually mean anything it was just a form or a format or something so uh i definitely see that as being one of her uh as one of the pieces of her her legacy as well um denise i know you said in your family that you guys talked a lot about um end of life things uh format or you know the the specific things about what each of you wanted at the end of life did the conversation change at all with your daughter once she knew that she was terminal 180 degrees. Yes. She didn't want to talk about it. Then I think for a long time, she felt like that was accepting defeat. Mm -hmm. And in her mind, she was going to beat this and up until the point of metastasis, she understood then. But she felt like this was some, she had been successful in every endeavor in her life. And this was going to be another stepping stone and she would get over it. And, uh, so talking about it, we, you know, it's one thing to talk about death in the abstract, but when you're talking to somebody who's actually dying for them, I think it brings a rea- a sense of reality that maybe they're not prepared yet to deal with. Katie was uh, newlywed and had great plans. And I, I just think the feeling for her was I can't lose this. I can't do this to my mom, my dad, my husband. And I have travel plans. <laughs> I just, I cannot allow this to take me out right now. And for her, it it was just more of pep talks 
I think for herself than reality talks until the time came that she couldn't, she just couldn't deny it. And the only regret I have very, I, everything I did, I did for Katie once she was diagnosed. So I'm so good with, with that. But the one regret that I wish I could go back and change the night she came home from Moffitt under hospice care, she was in the bathtub and I'm sitting there beside her. And she said, mom, do you think I'm dying? Well, she's under hospice care and she's been told there's nothing else they can do. And so I, I wasn't sure why she was even thinking in, in those terms. But what I said to her, instead of opening the dialogue and I said, Katie, you know, we have reservations for the beach in a couple of months. Why don't we talk about this after we get back from the beach? Mm. And I was in that moment, it was just mom trying to make my baby feel better and not be so sad and overwhelmed with what was happening. Um, I was prepared for that conversation. I wasn't trying to avoid it for myself. But I do regret that I didn't open that door and have that dialogue with her. And so if you were speaking to another mom who has a daughter with metastatic breast cancer, how would you recommend have opening the door to those conversations? Wow. Uh, I would not recommend opening the door. I think you have to take your cues from it for whatever death experience people are getting ready to have. That is their personal journey that they, they need to open that door. Um, you know, be receptive to it. Think about what you're going to say if those questions arise. But until they're prepared or they give you some sort of clue that, yes, I'm ready for, for us to have a conversation. Maybe they even want you to initiate it, but they're going to let you know that. Because otherwise, you you might be bringing something in that they're not emotionally prepared for. And cancer metastatic breast cancer is as emotional as it is physical and you cannot tread too delicately on somebody's emotions when they're dying you have to be extremely careful to preserve the that emotional health because that is very important to their physical health and how they respond to treatments and uh you know it's not everything i'm not saying that keep them happy and give them pep talks is going to make them better but you certainly don't want to uh, do anything that would be a detriment to how they're responding in their treatment. So if I'm hearing you correctly, um, your, your recommendation is to follow the cues of your daughter. Um, but your thought was when she said, mom, do you think I'm going to die? That that was her way of opening the door to the conversation yeah. with you. Okay. Yes. But I, I just, I was, I actually, to, on my emotions in that moment instead of what was best for her and to to every mom and Karen I think in and in one way you can probably attest to this our job becomes to when we know that our children our daughters are metastatic our job becomes to put ourselves aside we will have time later to grieve in our way and fall apart if we need to. But these girls, these young women, when they get to this point, um, they revert to little children who need their mothers. And Laura, I don't know if you had this experience or not, but earlier you said you didn't want RN speak. You didn't want medical talk. You wanted whatever you needed from your mother at that time. And and I think that it's very important for us to, as much as possible, put our feelings about what's happening aside, focus on their needs. It, my daughter didn't have children. If she had had children, it would have been a whole lot different. But uh, I, I knew what she needed, and I gave that to her. And I, I'm not sorry for any of the sacrifices that I made because it made her life easier. It made her last few months much, much better than had she been alone because her husband was living in L.A. 
Mm-hmm. And he would come home when he could, but he, he was working. And so I just had to put my needs aside. When I would come home, if I wasn't staying with her, I'd fall apart. I have my my times, but I didn't let her see that. I I took pictures at every opportunity I could. I did everything for her so that all she had to focus on was getting better. And that's how how I dealt with this. I know that's not going to be everyone's cup of tea. Karen dealt with it by jumping in and learning everything medical. And even to this day, Karen is a great advocate for medical research. I am an emotional advocate. And that that's just my niche. I, I don't I don't know the terminology. I can't tell you the I I couldn't even tell you the name of one of the chemos that she had. All of that is not important to me now. It's the emotional health of the ladies who are dealing with this now. I love that idea of being an emotional advocate. That's such a great, just, I don't know. It just feels warm and fuzzy. Like, you know, (laughs) Um, (laughs) would you talk a little bit? I mean, I I know that you're doing in some of the financial piece, but would you define an emotional advocate since you just threw that term out there and it sounds so cool? What, what, uh, what would you, how would you tell, tell somebody what that is? Well, for me, I, as I said earlier, I have inherited this beautiful group of friends of Katie's that are, some have passed, some are, are still thriving with NBC. Uh, those that I'm online with, some, some I get to see in person, but mostly it's online relationships, checking in. If they go quiet for more than a week on Facebook, I know that something's not right. And I, it's just a matter of a lot of check-ins, a lot of uh, just stopping by to say, you know, are you okay? How, how are things going? Do you need anything? For the ladies we serve here locally, I develop relationships with them. And uh, when, when the pandemic started, one thing that occurred to me was they don't need to be out in stores shopping for supplies that are almost impossible to find. So I created a fund to gather those supplies for them so I could deliver to their doorsteps. I wouldn't even open the door and take the chance of giving them a germ. But those kinds of things, those gestures bond you to someone and that their level of appreciation is greater than anybody can understand because I get how difficult it is for them to get out just the energy or to take the chance of picking up any kind of a germ or virus that would really set them back. And so I develop relationships and I just have ongoing conversations with the the ones that want to. Not every single patient wants to do that. And I respect that. But yeah, I just care about them and I invest time in their lives. Which is just amazing. It sounds like you're you're really nurturing and and being in some ways a surrogate mom as as they're going through something so difficult. So that's wonderful. I want to go back to Karen. I'm going to ask you a question, Karen, that then I'll come back to Denise with as well. But um, during the time that Amanda was living with NBC and and now um, also after she has passed, how are you getting support? Um, you, you've pour, you poured in so much to Amanda. You talk about the burden on you of seeing her friends pass. But how how are you getting support? Well, it uh, obviously her father and I were great supports to each other, and I never thought of going through it without him. Mm-hmm. And uh, fortunately, um, he has five brothers and their spouses who have been great. I have a wonderful grandson who uh, is uh, at Arizona State at the moment, and uh, he is just uh, terrific. And my main, and I, my stepson's terrific, and uh, my my main support has been Amanda's husband, who is just, he he, he considers me his, his second mom, basically. Uh, his mom in Morocco is still around, although he's worried about her right now with the pandemic and everything else. Mm-hmm. 
But uh, anyway, that's um, it's mainly been support. I know there are groups that I can uh, that I can get involved with, and I may in the. I, I feel like I'm still just processing things. I feel like I'm adjusting to a different universe than I used to live in when my daughter and my husband were alive. And uh, I can't say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm using some chemical means. I've got a mild antidepressant and I'm in touch with uh, people in the cancer community regularly, which is always, even though it terribly distresses me when people's health decline or when somebody passes, it's, it's still very good for me, I think, to stay involved. Every once in a while, one of my relatives says, well, why don't you just stay away from it for a while? But I can't, you know, it just doesn't feel right. Um, but I want to say one, one thing Denise said about, you know, we, we took somewhat different approaches. But when, uh, when Amanda really started to know that her liver was uh, probably not going to be, was going to cause her uh, death, um, she when we when she and she and her husband had bought a house in Jacksonville at the end of 2018 and we went from like 2018 they're talking about you know travel and uh plans to do some work stuff together maybe even looking into an adoption or something like that and then in early 2019 it just started all to unravel but when I showed up in Jacksonville, she had several things on her bucket list, one of which was a reunion of her cousins in New York City, which she got to. But when she got back, I talked to her in the airport and she said, Mom, I'm just miserable. I'm in so much pain. And uh, so anyway, my husband and I headed up there right away. And uh, when, when I talked to her the first time after we got there, she said, I wanted my mommy. <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, she was always, I just, you know, I, I never want to give up. I never want to give up. And, uh, but when she was obviously completely out of energy and completely in dealing with a lot of pain, which she hadn't been up till then, but I asked, do you want me to make calls? Do you want me to make, try to make more appointments? Do you want me to get somebody on the phone with you? And she said, mom, I never wanted to give up, but I'm just so tired. Mm. And then I'm. Which I think able to screen. Screen. Oh. Go ahead, Denise. Sorry. I'm sorry. I, I just when I, I just was telling Karen I wish I could reach to the screen. I I, I feel your pain, Karen. I'm so yeah. sorry. Well, I can say selfishly from being within the NBC community that the people who um you have touched, Karen, and the people that you've stayed in contact with have always appreciated that. And, and I definitely see the people who remain connected. Doesn't really matter, I think, sometimes who you remain connected with, but the connections that, that you have within the NBC community and with your family, um, I've, I've just seen that as such a strength for you as, as much as it is sad. Um, but I'm so happy and thankful that you've continued to reach out and to be connected to people. Um, but what Denise just did, I think is the strength of being around people who just get what you're going through. Like I see you, I know exactly where you are right now. And I just think that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, oh, and please don't be at all embarrassed about chemical help. So, you know, coping, coping mechanisms that we had in the past, not up to the task of losing people. Yes. So we did. No yeah. shame in getting help wherever frankly, I, that comes from. <laughs> frankly, I told Amanda I thought it was a good idea for her, which she and she did. She did yeah. use uh, some uh, antidepressant and anti-anxiety meds. But uh, actually, uh, I started thinking about that because I have a friend who recently died of uh, of uh, um, uh, ALS, mm. and uh, when she was first diagnosed, the most optimistic happy person you've ever met when she was first diagnosed and she was one of a string in her family and the doctor said and I'm going to uh, prescribe an antidepressant and Julie said well don't we want to wait and see if I need it and the doctor said you'll need it mm -hmm. I, I also want to say 
Denise has this empathy, which she she sees needs that, you know, it, it, it's not quite in my same purview. I'm always like, well, what can I do to help, you know? <laughs> and I don't instantly think of things I can do, and Denise does. And so I'm I'm happy if I have a chance to, you know, support her efforts and back up what she's doing because she does a wonderful job. Thank you, Karen. I appreciate that. Connecting the dots of hospice care and when to, you know, know that you want to refuse the next round of treatment when you know that you've had your last round and you're just done. I think that is such a powerful moment in a person's journey to realize, you know, is this treatment going to prolong my life? Is this treatment going to help and prevent future pain? Is this treatment going to be cured? Like, what are some of those questions? And, you know, I think that's something we don't always talk about because we always want to utilize the language of a fight. We're not giving up. We're going strong. We, we want to hold on, but you're right. Like we're tired. It's a lot. And so I just wanted to acknowledge that, you know, it's, it's okay to say no. And we have to allow ourselves that permission to say enough is enough. And have that conversation with your family ahead of time. So when you get there, they're not trying to talk you out of anything. They're embracing your decision and supporting that. So important. Yes. Um, Denise, I wanted to go back to you with the same question I asked Karen. Uh, You're talking about pouring into other people's lives. And uh, um, Karen's acknowledging how wonderful you are at that. But uh, how do you get support? And where do you get the strength and the support to be able to do that for other people? Um, Again, it goes back to my faith. But my husband and I, we didn't fall apart together. We, this made us stronger. Um, it, it was just something we had to lean on each other for. We, we couldn't, there was nobody else that understood. Nobody else in my close family had lost a child um, or had a child that had gone through cancer. So there, even though I had, oh, I, I have wonderful relatives that I'm very close to, and they were very supportive. They still didn't understand exactly what we were going through. And so um, I also, at about six months after Katie's death, realized I needed some help, got myself a, a, on an antidepressant. And I, I don't know if I need it, but I haven't gone off of it because I don't want to take the chance <laughs> of having to go through, through that. But uh, this, this is my therapy. Beauty for Ashes and doing what I do, knowing that in some small way, I, I realize I am not contributing like Amanda did. I'm not contributing to clinical trials or information that doctors need about patients. I get that. My contribution is just different. And, and it's because that's the way that, that I give. Um, I prefer to be involved in one-on-one in people's lives. And that is therapy for me. So once, once I realized it took me about a year to be able to do this, because in the beginning, a couple of people put me into uh, Facebook groups where other women were, you know, they were in there because their daughters were, were in there and they had been invited I, I did not have the emotional health at that point to be supportive of anybody else. I was still trying to gain back my my strength. But once that that year milestone was a big deal for me. It everybody dreads that, but for me, I there was a sense of relief after it was over with and the anticipation was gone. And then I was like, okay, time to put on the big girl pants and go forward with what you want to do. And, you know, fulfill the promises that I made quietly to myself that I wouldn't let Katie be forgotten. Well, I just want to say that there's no hierarchy of of meeting people's needs. And yes, Amanda may have this broad impact in the, the research space, which is helpful, the difference mm-hmm. that you're making in people's lives one-on-one, Denise, that that is no smaller 
um, because to those people, it's everything. So don't don't sell yourself short there, um, because everybody gives in the way that they give best. And if you try to give in a different way, it it doesn't doesn't make the same impact. So clearly, you're exactly in the niche that that you need to be in. Um, Karen, I think I might have cut you off when I was asking a question earlier. Was there something else that you wanted to share? I just uh, wanted to say uh, that uh, there are many times I wish I were more like Denise because I think I miss things that I could I could help people because uh, you know I'm, I'm sometimes I get too tunnel visioning about it and uh, I think if if I had if I had Denise's you know empathy and her her I don't know way of looking at the world I would feel better in some ways. So Mm. I greatly admire her. I don't mean for this to sound like the mutual admiration society (laughs) between Karen and I, but, but it is because we, we appreciate the gifts and the strengths that each of us have. And while she's not doing what I'm doing, she is doing important things in other areas. And she also very quietly is a huge supporter of us at Christmas time when we have our Amazon wish lists. And, you know, I, I won't embarrass her and say all the things that she purchased, but she, she is a big supporter. And there were, there was one little girl that woke up on Christmas morning who meant the world to her, Karen. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. And isn't that just the best feeling in the world that you've given joy to somebody else's life? So much better than receiving it your own self. You just want to give it away. Yes. Yes. Well, I see that we're a little past five. And so I'm going to ask two more questions of each of you. The first is just if there's anything else you want to share. And then the question that I ask all of our panelists and all of our guests is what you what word you believe really describes um, our conversation today, or I'm going to give you guys a different one, a word that you think describes your daughter. Um, because I think that uh, where we're talking about both things, not just your efforts, but also your daughter's legacies as well. So um, Karen, I'm going to come to you. Is there anything else that you haven't shared um, that you feel would be important to share, especially if you had a chance to talk to a mom whose daughter has just been diagnosed with MBC. Um, is there anything else you think that that woman needs to know as she embarks on this part of her life? Well, I think this has been a, um, a part of the everything Denise and I have said. It's be there. Be there. I, I It breaks my heart when I read people's you know, accounts of dealing with cancer and they're also fighting with their closest family members about their treatment or about their attitude or, you know, it just, just be there. That's the most important thing. And as far as Amanda, her, she tell her husband, I love this life. And that defines her. She loved life and she loved life for others and uh, wanted to wanted to uh to make everything the best it could be for herself and for her friends and her loved ones. Thank you, Karen, for sharing. Denise, over to you. Any last words, especially to a mom whose daughter's been diagnosed with MBC? Again, to reiterate step back from your own emotional involvement as far as your needs, meet your daughter's needs, whatever those may be, whatever that may look like, because you're going to have plenty of time to meet your own needs at some point, but you have a finite amount of time to make sure that your daughter receives everything, make her know that she is valuable, she is loved, and that what she needs is important. And about Katie, I would say Katie in her circle of friends was a shining star. Everybody will tell you that. And my inspiration, it it all comes from her because 
earlier, I said how she was being so philanthropic and not even telling anybody about it. But she, I, I don't know why I say all the time, this disease seems to target the best and the brightest of women. And you, you don't find that out until you are immersed in the horribleness of it. But intelligent, loving, caring, kind people, it takes away from us. And so grab a hold of whatever you can, whatever trait that they're leaving behind, grab hold of it and run with it and, and just keep their fire going for other ladies in the same position. And my words for this would be inspire. That This has been very inspiring for me and to think of all the women that might see this, even if it's just one woman who's in our position or about to be in our position, if she is gaining some hope that she's not alone and she can contact me on Facebook, Karen probably feels the same way, reach out. We're more than happy to talk. And my my word for Katie, it's funny because we had her, some friends gave her a concert and, and they wrote a song for her because prior to the concert, they said, if you had one word to talk about Katie, what would it be? And my word was inspire. And that's what she did for me. So thank you for doing this. Thank you for giving us voice for other people in our position. Uh, That's just beautiful to be inspired by your children, to be inspired generally. I mean, that's just a, it's a beautiful picture of somebody's life. Karen, I think your word was love. Did I catch that correctly? Uh, yes, yes. Okay, yes. Or life. Life, yeah. love, yeah. Or the two with a slash, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, I do that remember was- Amanda Amanda at one point said, you know, I'm really messing around with your golden years. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, my golden years, our golden years are ones we spend with you and our family. and." Yeah, that's beautiful as well to just think about your plans are your plans until things change and then we get a new plan, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And what greater blessing than to be able to give those things to your children, to be able to give the space to be themselves, to be able to give them the room to live their life the way that they want to live. So I just thank both of you for, for your example. And for being willing to talk about your experiences. One thing I hear from a lot of family members is that um, it doesn't hurt to talk about their loved one. It hurts when everybody stops talking about their loved ones. Do you find that to be true in your lives? Absolutely. Totally. Yes. Katie told me her only fear was to be forgotten. And so I... You know, Facebook has been a wonderful tool for keeping her name out there and what we're doing in her honor, keeping that at the forefront. And, uh, you know, people sometimes they'll say to me privately, you know, it's been five years, it's been six years. Are you okay? You know, if I happen to make a post about missing her or something, but I'm very okay because I'm able to express how I feel about her still to this day. And even though I know that I'll see her again, I miss her in the here and now. And so I want to talk about her. I want other people to tell me good stories, funny stories, nice things they did that she did for them, because that's how she's going to be remembered. How about you, Karen? I couldn't say it better. It's uh, yes, I, 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 welcome opportunities to talk about her. And uh, while um, uh, I can't say we came to it with the same kind of faith that Denise's family has, I I, I just feel so strongly that she's, she's waiting for me, that we're going to talk again, we're going to be together again, and uh, that she knows what I'm trying to do to keep her her spirit alive with uh, her friends and and everyone else. So yeah. So anyway, I think this has been a very valuable uh, conversation. Good, and I think it's a great reminder for everybody 
to speak people's names, to talk about your memories. I think it's, I know in, in my life, it's important to be able to give the memories that I have of my grandparents who are no longer with us to my kids. And um, I know that in working in the um, MBC Grieving Together, which is what brought this uh, webinar series together, that um, we do need to keep saying these people's names. We do need to say the people's names who we've lost, who are important to us. And um, I, I have not met somebody who's left behind who didn't want to have a conversation about the one they've, they're missing. But yeah. I hear so many people say, oh, I didn't want to bring up their name for fear of, of making that person sad. And what I keep hearing from everybody is I'm sad all the time. <laughs> Bringing yes. up the person's name lets me talk about something that's not so sad. So I wanted to leave that with everybody that um, who is listening, that it's important to talk about the the people that that we've lost. And the, the their family member that's left behind can say, oh, it's not a good day to talk about that person. Um, but it's better to, to signal your willingness, kind of like Denise was talking about her daughter needed to open the door. Um, but signal your willingness to talk to the people in your life who have been left behind when someone they've loved has has passed on. Let them know that you're a safe space to be able to um, relive those memories and talk about the good things. Um, because I've learned so much more about Katie and Amanda today. And certainly my life is richer for knowing a little bit more about them and knowing what y'all are doing to, to carry on their legacy. So thank you for being willing to open yourselves up and be vulnerable today. Much, much appreciated. Thank you, thank for, you for setting this up. Yes. Thank you all for joining and tuning in each week to Breast Cancer Conversations. As a reminder, this content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always ask the advice of your physician or other qualified health professionals with any questions you have regarding a medical condition. Be sure to check us out at survivingbreastcancer.org where you can find out more about upcoming happenings and events and webinars, as well as follow us on social media. Instagram handle is survivingbreastcancer.org, all one word, and also on Twitter, which is SBC underscore ORG. Let's continue the conversation online. Keep on thriving, and we'll talk to you again next week.